Indiana Bible College is committed to training tomorrow's apostolic leaders today. This is the Indiana Bible College podcast. I want to let you know that you can be a part of the IBC community here on campus and join other young people who are passionate about their call to ministry. For more information and to apply, visit www.indianabiblecollege.org forward slash apply. It's tough to believe that we're already six weeks into the fall 2020 semester, but it's even more hard to believe that the spring 21 application deadline is just a few short weeks away. So make sure you apply for spring enrollment before December 15th, 2020. But if you would like to be a part of apostolic education before January, then visit www.ibcdl.com where you can learn more about our online learning program in English and in Spanish. That's ibcdl.com to learn more information about the online learning program. Today on the podcast, our student body secretary, Jillian Rue Kidder, preaches a message entitled, What is in your hands? What is in your heart? team. Thank you, musicians. Man, what an awesome, an awesome set. Thank you. Thank you, Logan, for uh, ushering the spirit of the Lord. Whew, thank you, Jesus. Man. Well, I'll just say good morning. Good morning, everyone. I hope everyone's doing good today. Um, you know, I'm, man, I just, he is so worthy. I'm sorry, I'm just kind of getting caught up in that. He is so worthy of every single thing. First, um, I do want to give honor to Brother and Sister Galleon for this opportunity. You know, I know that they're not here right now, but they have poured so much into the student body. They have personally been a, uh, a leader in my life and have just spoken um, into me and as campus pastors and now as um, vice presidents. And now we've got uh, Brother Carson, who has just been preaching the word at Calvary and speaking to us at IBC. And uh, I just love seeing the burden that he has for this city. Amen. Um, it's been a privilege to serve alongside Drew and Elijah. And I thank you, student body, for coming. I know we're all kind of a little tired. Been doing a lot of walking and praying. <laughs> um, but amen. I do want to give honor to my dad today. He's here. And um, he called me. Yeah. <laughs> He called me and he said, Jill, you know, I want to come hear you preach. Is that okay? Or, you know, would that make you too nervous? And I was like, no, you know, if, if you can, you know, he 
he's working a full-time job, but he said, oh, I want to take a day off. And I said, well, if that's what you want to do, he said, okay, good, because I've already called Brother Galleon. So uh, Brother Galleon knows he's here. He didn't uh, bring in coronavirus to, no, I'm just <laughs> Actually, so we're going to be working through the word today. So I'll have, I'll let y'all be seated and um, yeah, we'll just dive into that. So when I think about the Word and about the Bible, I think that one of the most recognizable or talked about people in the Bible is David, right? David was this true servant of the Lord. He was a worshiper, a man after God's own heart. He wrote these beautiful songs, and he stood up to this giant. He faced the lion and the bear. He served with grace under Saul. And with patience, he waited 30 years after being anointed to be appointed king. We like David, right? This Old Testament hero. And I think that many of us, we, we think we are King David. And I think that sometimes we are. We have people coming for our lives, and it feels like we've got to run to the caves. And then other times we're having these beautiful skyscraper moments of faith where like, we just, we're like, oh, man, nothing can stop us. God is on our side, and we're just, you know, we're, we're doing it, and we're going, right? But I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we are also like Saul, more often than maybe we want to admit. I think it's a lot easier to view ourselves as a victim and maybe not as the agitator or the, the bully. So if you give me... Um, the liberty to step into something that I know is probably maybe too deep or too personal than maybe some of us want to go. Um, I believe that this message is just for much for me as it is for you. I wouldn't say something like this if I didn't feel like it needed application in my life. Um, so today I'm going to be preaching about what's in your hands, what's in your heart. If everyone bow your heads as we pray. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would have an open hand and an open heart to receive your word today. Lord, help us to break down anything that's keeping us from hearing and applying your word, or that you would search our hearts, God. Lord, help us and find anything that's so deeply rooted in there that needs to be out, that's preventing us from spreading your word. Lord, above all, we want to seek you and seek your name. In Jesus' name. So I know I just basically just called everybody Saul, so I don't, <laughs> I'm like, let me clarify. We, when we think of Saul, we're like, okay, this guy, let's see, he's a tyrant, he's a murderer, he's selfish, he's this guy that's um, only seeking his own gain. So I'm not saying that any one of you are a murderer or a tyrant or anything like that, um, but I do think that just like we want to take these people like David and, and the positive quality, uh, qualities and like, oh, you know, oh, I just, you know, in, in my valley, I can worship the Lord. You know, we want to take these positive qualities and say, oh, that's, that's me and, you know, and apply that to us. I think that even in my own life, I've seen some of Saul's negative qualities in my own life. So let's get a little background. Where did, where did Saul go wrong? Because you know, we, we want to look at Saul from the very end of his life and just when it's just all fallen to pieces. But what we see here is in 1 Samuel 15, he spares Agag and he saves the best boil. And when Samuel confronts him, he's like, he just justifies his sins. In verse 20, it says, 
And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, it was the people who took the best, or who took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the chief of the things, which, well, should have been utterly destroyed, to just to they took it only to sacrifice the Lord thy God. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to hearken that the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And then verse 24 says, which is just blows my mind. Saul says to Samuel, okay, okay. I've sinned, I've transgressed the commandment of the people in thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray, pardon my sin and turn again, turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. How, how sad is that? We, I, I, I want to give Saul the benefit of the doubt, right? Like, I want him, I want to think that, like, he was truly sorry for what he did, even though he pretty much just blamed the people. He said, oh, well, they took it. It wasn't me. They took it. And then, you know, but they were going to sacrifice it. But I find that it's rather convenient that he only asked for forgiveness after he was caught. Rather than admitting, you know, the, the fault initially, he wants to see if he even needs to repent. So that's kind of, I think with Saul, it was this, the slow fade. And if you uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16, 14, this is going to be our main text. And I think that what we see here is Saul is just slowly going, and he's just never really looking for to see if he even needs to repent. Only, only I guess, if he's caught. Okay. Say amen if you've got it in your... Okay. Amen. Okay. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on an harp, and it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. And then what you see here is they go and they find David and they bring him in. And then verse 23, it says, And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. This is the first time that David plays for Saul. It was soft music for a hard heart. And let me just, like, take a time out here and say that, oh, man, I commend you worship leaders, you singers, you musicians. I, as much as I try and take piano lessons every year, and let me tell you, I can never get this, like, crisscrossed in hands, you know, the, you know how all y'all get playing, and you're just, and then Sister Abigail's like, eh, you know, I, I wish I had that kind of, come on now. <laughs> Uh, I, I commend you, worship leaders, because you let that talent and anointing just flow 
and come together. And when you are in sync with God, you have this amazing ability to usher in his spirit, just like Logan did today. I think that when David, when he walked in representing these singers and musicians, that he not only, you know, he's like, I'm going to walk in with God in view, but he knew that God was going to use him as he played. And as David played, Saul's spirit was refreshed and was well. Saul had this burden that was sent by God, this evil spirit just laying on him, and it was just so heavy. And then as he lets go of that, it's lifted. I imagine it as like a very free, freeing and sweet moment for Saul. I'm sure like if you all close your eyes and you think about that one NAYC service or that IBC chapel where you walked in and you're just like, you know, and then you just kind of begin to worship the Lord and you're like, oh, like you leave and you're like, okay, we're, we're going to paint the town red. We're going to go conquer this place. And you're like, I'm going to play hands on you. And I'm, you know, and you feel like you can do anything because that, that heaviness was lifted. But what's interesting to me is directly after this, you have the iconic Bible story of David defeating Goliath. And y'all, I'm pretty real. I'm not going to lie. I think Saul's behavior in this chapter is hilarious. I just, I don't know what to think of him. I'm assuming here that what you see is Saul, he's not really paying much attention to David before Goliath. He's just kind of David's just this kid. He's in his little box, and he's he watches a sheep, and then, you know, he's playing the instrument, and and then all of a sudden, like, Saul's like, well, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, you're cool. You're cool. We're going to put you in as a armor bearer. And it even says that Saul, when he made uh, David his armor bearer, that he loved him. And when a moment of war comes, David is like, put me in coach, put me in coach, put me in coach. And Saul's like, fine, go ahead, you know, we'll put you in. And um, Saul says, even says, he looks at David and he's like, okay, let, let the Lord be with you. And so David goes out to face, face Goliath. And, you know, we all know the story. He's like, my God's going to take you down. Um, and to no surprise to David, the Lord was with him. But to be honest, I think to much surprise of Saul, the Lord was with David. I don't think he saw, I don't know if he didn't see that coming or what, because right after the defeat of Goliath, Saul looks to his commander of the army, and he's like, hey, who, who is that? And then the commander's like, I don't know. I mean, like, didn't you hire him? He's like, you know, so that nobody knows, like, it's like you, I like, that's why I'm like, what happened? Maybe, maybe all of a sudden he didn't even recognize David because David stepped into this role, but so they're like, okay, we need to bring this kid in because we don't even know, like, who he is, where he came from. So David with this, I don't know, I, just, I guess I'd audacity, he's holding the head of Goliath to go <laughs> see Saul, and Saul doesn't recognize him, and he's just sitting there holding the Goli- or holding Goliath's head, and ugh, nasty. <laughs> but I'm sorry, I'm like, that is, I think I would, like, pass out if, if someone did that. I'd be like, okay, um, so they ask him, and they're like, who, who are you? Because I don't seem to remember you. And this, this kid that just brought the victory, he says, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse. So then you see, you know, to the next scene, it's literally right after, that there's this 
celebration of sorts. They're singing and dancing, and everyone's out there. And it literally says that people are there to meet King Saw with joy and instruments of music. So I'm assuming that they're kind of having this parade for King Saw because King Saw is like the king, you know. But they're, it's like, okay, we're going to thank King David for having this victory. But yet you see in verse 7 it says, And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. It's often said that if you want to test the integrity of your character, Watch your reaction as your enemies are lifted up in your presence. Are you just going to roll your eyes and shrug your shoulders and downplay what they're, you know, being awarded for? Are you just going to sit there and be like, that's nothing. I mean, I mean, I've slain my thousands and David is 10,000. Let's do a recount. I don't think it's actually 10,000. Like, seriously, though, because of this moment, you know, people say that the eyes are the windows of the soul. And I think that Saul let his eyes perceive something as rightful as thanking David for the win and to now viewing David as a threat. What more could David have but the kingdom? He's out to get me. What was in his heart? What was in Saul's heart? I believe right there, bitterness was planted. You had jealousy, anger, fear, envy, it, what started with the glare certainly did not end there. What you have from verse 9 to verse 10 is, you know, it, it's like a, there's time in between. You have the parade, and then directly after that, you now go to verse 10, and Saul brings David back to play the harp. And verse 10 says, And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, And David played with his hand as other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. Cancel culture tells us that we need to withdraw support of popular public figures after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. And personally, I believe Saul was all about cancel culture with David. Although David did nothing wrong, to Saul, it was considered offensive. It wasn't enough just to let Saul go, but he had to be on the offense side. He couldn't just let David live his life and just keep playing that harp. He had this attitude of, I can't just let you sit there and play can't just watch you just doing your thing. No, 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 no. That's not good. That, I can't. See, I'm I'm be honest, y'all. I've been at IBC for three years, going on four years. Hallelujah. I stayed. <laughs> um, it was hard. It was hard. No. <laughs> uh, so to be honest, I, I know how IBC can get. I know I know how I've been here. Like I said, I'm guilty, I'm guilty of this attitude and this mentality. I'm not perfect, and I do believe this message is for each of us. But if I'm being honest, I think just like Saul, 
we can sit here in chapel and we can say, I can't believe they are letting this person preach. Doesn't Brother Gallon even know what he's done? And we just look to this person and we're, you know, to our friends and we go about in our rooms, in our dorm rooms, and we just sit and we spectate and we criticize and we mock. We say, well, I mean, that translation's all wrong. I mean, I guess we got to go tell Brother Kilman and uh, give him a little 411 on what, you know. We look to our friends with bitterness in our hearts and a javelin in our hands, and we are ready to pin someone to the wall with pin them and their reputation to the wall. I will, you know, no one is perfect. Yes, we all make mistakes. Yes, we are all growing and learning. But it seems to me it's a lot easier for us to vindicate ourselves by putting other people down. Yeah, maybe, maybe they did do something wrong and they shouldn't be there up on the, on the platform. Maybe leadership really doesn't know, you know, what someone's doing or going through. But, I mean, who are we to judge the intent of a heart? We say, <laughs> I'm just being real, y'all. We sit here and we say, there must have been a mistake. How could she have gotten on praise and not me? Like Saul in this art of comparison, through our eyes and our hearts, we look at our perfection and we want to compare it to other people's faults. We want to take them down because surely people didn't know what they were really like. And maybe we just have some sort of narrative that we just feel like people, people should know. But with vengeance in our hearts, we seek to destroy someone who is anointed and being used of God when all David is trying to do is to help you. I think what, what really upsets me about this passage is when I read about Saul, it's like he, he knew. He knew like the first time that David played for him. He knew that David had the ability to usher in the presence of the Lord, that if he just let go of the bitterness and put down that javelin, that that evil spirit would be lifted from him. When he walked into, when Saul walks into chapel, if he would just let go of that bitterness, it would feel so free, and he wouldn't even have to worry about it, but he chose to hold that in his hand. David plays for him again, three times. Saul, what's in your hands? What's in your heart? The very person that you're seeking to destroy could be the very person that is trying to help you and bring you back to God. From, fall, from Saul's first sin, we see it's much easier for Saul to bring an animal to be burnt on an altar than to bring every high thought into obedience to God and his will subject to God's will. I think it's so easy for each of us, myself included, to say, okay, God, I'll go to IBC. I'll make this sacrifice. But, I mean, we can make all sacrifices all day long, but do you even see the obedience in your heart? Obedience to submit every aspect of our inner thoughts to him. My favorite class, or my, one of my favorite classes, sorry, is uh, our introduction to holiness class. And I, I love that class, and I kind of just want to sit in it every, every semester. But it teaches us that inward holiness must come before outward holiness. Amen? 
that we don't defile our outward temple because we're to be this beautiful representation and place for God to dwell. You know, we, we know the familiar passage of 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and it says, What know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In our culture, like I said, in our culture, we don't have very many temples, especially in Indiana. All my Hoosiers, like, give me a little, like, woohoo or amen or something. <laughs> yeah, woo Hoosiers. Proud, loud and proud, right? Um, you know, but we don't have, I mean, we just got cornfields here. I'm jealous for my friends that have mountains or oceans or something. I'm, I'm not going to, Brother Mooney used to say all the time, uh, what did he say? It was like, there's nothing like a sunset over a cornfield. I don't. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I don't think I really agreed with that one. If you've ever seen a, if you've ever seen a sunset over an ocean, that's kind of that's that's pretty beautiful. <laughs> but most of these most of these beautiful buildings, you know, when when we think about temples and all this stuff, we think about you know. I try to envision um, these buildings that have existed for thousands of years, you know, and they're all out in Europe. And I've never left the country. I'm a good old American girl. So uh, I don't know. I don't know what a beautiful temple looks like. So I'm, I apologize, but the most American, most modern example of some just beautiful architectural building is the White House. It has this beautiful white marble on the outside, and the inside is even more beautiful and exquisite in design. It's actually really interesting because... In 1945, after the death of Franklin Roosevelt, all eyes were on President Truman. And I'm not going to lie, most of us are like, I'm like, okay, we know Trump, Obama, Bush, and Reagan, right? And then, like, the ones that were assassinated, pretty much. That's pretty much our American history. <laughs> so I'm going to te- hopefully teach y'all a little bit of our history here <laughs> I'm just teasing y'all. I'm like, a lot of you guys are smarter than me. (laughs) Um, We have had this privilege, uh, or I've had the privilege to go to our nation's capital, and I get to see, you know, the beauty of the architecture of D.C. I just thought about Cameron Staten, who gets to probably see it every day. Yeah, yeah, the White House is probably in her back, you know, her backyard. Yeah. But um, the White House, it has 132 rooms, 35 bathrooms, 28 fireplaces, and eight staircases. Um, I would just be thankful for just one fireplace, but, you know, 28, that's fine. So (laughs) the executive mansion, as they call it, is definitely one of those most coveted houses to live in. Like I said, hey, if I could get one fireplace, 28, whatever, that'd be awesome. So it was built in 1792, and, you know, throughout 156 years, the White House had taken several attacks, like a fire set by the British troops in 1814. But this marble icon that is, like, one of America's symbols just continued to stand throughout history until 1948, as Margaret Truman is playing her piano. And while my imagination thinks that maybe she was like Jason, and she's just taking her hand and sliding across all the keys, you know. 
But she probably was just like, dun, 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 dun. you know, no, I don't know. Maybe probably was playing something just very chill. But that piano leg crashes through the floor and into the family dining room that was underneath them, the White House. I think it was then that Harry Truman decides we need to do a thorough investigation of the integrity of this building. In one, in a one-day structural survey, they had found that the main beams had rotted and split and found that throughout the years, because of changing times to create indoor plumbing, electricity, elevators, and out of con- convenience, people cut these wooden support beams, reducing their sizes from like 14 inches, I think that's right, now down to two inches. Right? I'm like, I can't even, like, my mind can't even fathom this because I'm like, the White House? The ceiling had dropped 18 inches throughout the years. Investigators had found that the second floor was sinking and was bound for imminent collapse. Without a second option, President Truman decides to gut the president's mansion, making it a true fixer-upper. All right, media, if you want to move that bus and show this extreme home makeover edition. So this is the White House, y'all. So they take out everything. Everything. uh, Congress authorized funding of $5.4 million for the entire project to reconstruct the White House, keeping only the exterior walls in place while everything on the inside was completely removed. A new foundation was built and excavated, extending 25 feet below the original foundation. The people's house looks like no person would ever want to live there. So how did this $379 million mansion need so much repair? Throughout its years of neglect, two world wars, a Great Depression, and only in that, you know, maybe 30-year time period, not even those 156 years, it just never seemed like a convenient time to survey the building and fix its repairs. You had two different presidents who, you know, were extending, you know, made the East Wing and the West Wing, and then another president was like, oh, well, we need to expand upwards, so let's build a third floor on it and made out of concrete, but there was no support beams except for the exterior walls. When they finally surveyed the White House in 1948, its outward, despite its outward beauty, they deemed it was unfit for anyone to live in. So, you know, obviously the first family had to evacuate and leave because they couldn't even live in it. We can try and make ourselves into some immaculate king, talk ourselves into the idea that we're this great leader, this great Christian, but when you just, when you keep building and you're like, well, I've got this talent and I've got this and this and this, and we just keep adding it on, but when you let your foundation become so damaged by others or even by your own neglect, it's only a matter of time before you have an imminent collapse. Maybe even our own outward expressions, attitude, and Attire can fool others, but we can't fool God. Rather than dealing with the root of our sin or whatever, we we make these convenient cuts that are only damaging ourselves. We may act like like we have it all together, but our hearts are in desperate need of repair. What ends up happening is we're just left with the shell of a person with a deteriorating inside unfit for God's spirit to dwell in us. Maybe it's time that your heart should be fixed by God. 
And we can't emphasize outward holiness if we're not willing to have inward holiness. Our outward temple was designed to reflect his spirit that we contain. A house or a temple has no purpose if God, if it's unfit for God to live in. Something that I find interesting is that the six things that God hates are, um, are found in Proverbs um, chapter 6. And, you know, like, I don't know, I always thought it was going to be like these in, insane things, like ugh, God would hate this, this person or this person, but I think that we can see these things in ourselves. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift into running to mischief, a false witness that speak lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. How, I just like, when I read that, I was like, God, how many times have I walked around IBC or around Indianapolis with the proud look? Or how many times was I quick to, quick to, I don't know, get the tea and, and, and my feet were swift into running into mischief? Or like Saul, looking down or looking to, uh, to shed innocent blood. You want to know, you, you want my honest opinion on what extinguishes revival? Discord. I think that the biggest challenge we face this reality week is ourselves. Not COVID, not other people, not whatever class schedules, flyer, whatever. I think it's ourselves first. I'm actually coming to a close right now, so if you'd all stand, and I'm going to invite the musicians to come. I know that this message is, it's not necessarily one of them, run the altars, preach the fire, but it's a, it's a reflective one. It's sad because Saul was never able to bring Israel together. Israel was disunited and falling apart. And the character of King Saul was certainly not helping. After Saul had committed all of his sins, God was done with him as king, and it was time to anoint the new king. 1 Samuel 15.35 says that Samuel mourned Saul, yet uh, Samuel never visited Saul again, yet he continued to mourn him. I think that it must have been pretty bad for God to say to Samuel, how long will you mourn Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. God knew it was time to focus on finding someone who would let God's will become their will. Someone who would seek God first. Someone who would reunite the kingdom of Israel. In 2020, we can be a Samuel who mourns for the lost potential of what could have been. Or we can decide just to let go of that and we can have our hearts fixed on that this year is not over yet. We are still in 2020. We can't just sit here and just wait for 2021 to happen just for us to start ministering. This year is not over yet. There's people here who we have to stop mourning for what could have been and start ministering to the reality of the moment. There's people who in 2020 need Jesus, not 2021, but right now. God said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for something that I have rejected? 
Samuel, what's in your heart? Samuel fixed in his heart the reality of God's will. And what was in Samuel's hands? A horn of oil. Like I said, this this altar call is going to be just very reflective. And so I would just kind of, I don't know, maybe divide it into two parts. The first part is that I believe each of us should search our hearts. Some of us are like Saul, with event after event and service after service. It never felt like a convenient time to fix the inside of our hearts. Is there anything in our hearts that we are suppressing and hiding from Jesus that needs to be handed over to him in an altar of prayer? We need to set that javelin down. We can't show people the love of Christ if we have rejected it ourselves just to hold on to bitterness or anger or envy. For others, maybe we're a Samuel. And this is also our part two is just even though once we search our hearts, we need to pray that if God has closed a door that we were passionate about this year, that God would help us to stop mourning and going into ministering. 2020 has been a season of mourning. And I've every person I've talked to and asked them, what did you think 2020 was going to be like? Every single person had said 2020 was going to be, was going to be the best year yet. And yeah, it has been pretty disappointing. But I think it's time for our hearts to hold on to the burden that he's been dealing with us this week. The burden for the lost, the burden for the people of Fountain Square and Indianapolis. And it's time to pick up that horn of oil and start anointing and ministering. The musicians and singers are going to sing. And I think it would be um, good if if you want to just put your head in the chair or just come to the altar. I know social distancing, there's different protocols, but just find a place to pray and um, pray that God would reconstruct our hearts, that our hearts would be fit for his spirit to dwell in us. Let's pray. Thank you.